This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, Copyright 1981. Chapter 2, God's Law and the Poor. Slavery is an example of an institutionalized evil. Ronald Sider, Journal of Theology for Southern Africa, December 1979, page 38. You may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Leviticus 25:44. God's genuine concern for the poor is manifested throughout the Bible. Cry Justice, Ronald Sider's anthology of the Bible quotations on the subject, certainly bears out this point well, although I can't say much for Sider's annotations. Indeed, God's Word has quite a lot to say about specific remedies for poverty, and much of the Old Testament law deals with the problem. As we shall see, however, Sider glosses over these clear biblical commands in favor of his own solutions, solutions which are usually opposed to biblical law. In this chapter, we will first take a look at who the poor are, and then we will examine the specific biblical laws which seek to alleviate poverty. It should should be kept in mind, however, that none of the biblical poor laws is intended to be for long-term benefit to the poor. All are stop-gap measures designed to allow some breathing space in order to provide time for the real long-term solutions to poverty. The poor laws alone will not suffice. What is needed is a total reconstruction of our lives and society in terms of biblical law. As we shall see in a later chapter, It is my firm contention that poverty can and will be almost entirely eliminated in this earth. But that will come about only as men are converted and nations discipled to the obedience of the Christian faith. The poor laws are crucial, and if if we ignore them, we will incur national judgment. But we cannot regard them as the ultimate solution. They are intended to serve only as emergency measures. The final solution will come about through strict cultural adherence to the whole of God's law. One further fact must be noted. In general, the laws which specifically provide for the poor are not enforced by the state. This is not to suggest that these laws are unimportant. They are very important. Too often we assume that a crime is inconsequential if the state cannot punish its offenders. This is a form of state worship. The Bible prohibits us from turning every sin into a civil crime under state jurisdiction. The civil government cannot punish criminals unless given the right to do so by Scripture. But that is not the end of the story, of course. God is judge in history and at the last day, and he brings punishment against those who violate his law. In particular, he has declared himself to be the defender of the poor, and he judges men and nations in terms of their obedience to the poor laws. For example, Exodus 22, 21-27, Psalm 12, verse 5, Proverbs 22, 22 and 23. The Bible distinguishes two groups of people in particular who may be defenseless against oppression and who are to be especially regarded as objects of our concern. Number one, strangers. Biblical law assumes that a nation which is materially blessed will attract immigrants. There is no biblical justification and hence no economic justification for for prohibiting immigration. According to popular mythology, immigrants take jobs away from American citizens. It is ironic that this belief is held by many who are often 
in violent opposition to one another. In Southern California, Ku Klux Klansmen often patrol the Mexican border to aid immigration and naturalization service agents in rounding up illegal aliens. Occasionally, immigrants caught by our loyal defenders have been raped, beaten, and shot in the back. On the other hand, consider this report on the United Farm Workers from the New York Times. During the Union's 1974-75 strike near Yuma, Arizona, which was led by Manuel Chavez, Cesar Chavez's cousin and longtime top aide, hundreds of Mexican aliens were brutally beaten by UFW representatives to keep them from crossing the border and taking the jobs of striking melon workers. So much for solidarity. God is firmly opposed to this activity. Not that our borders shouldn't be protected against military invaders and criminals, but mere immigration is not a crime. Virtually all the activity of the Immigration and Naturalization Service is thus in flagrant violation of the law of God. God tells us that he loves the stranger and commands us to love him also. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. Deuteronomy 10, 18, and 19. Note, in the Bible, love is always action. It is defined here as providing strangers with what they need in order to live. Obviously, then, if if it angers God if we abuse them, trouble them, or make life hard for them. They are to receive the same justice in court as native citizens. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the strangers as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 24, verse 22. You shall have one statute both for the alien and for the native of the land. Numbers 9, verse 14. Specifically, any oppression of strangers is strictly forbidden and brings on divine judgment. Exodus 22, 21 through 24. This does not mean the abolition of all distinctions, however. It does constitute, it does not constitute a legal mandate for integration. Indeed, Israelites were permitted to sell diseased meat to strangers since pagan cultures generally have no objection to eating it. Deuteronomy 14.21 In addition, full citizenship in Israel was denied to certain ethnic groups for three and sometimes ten generations. Deuteronomy 23.3, and 8 But while the Bible maintains a realistic appraisal of the often heathen backgrounds of immigrants, it nevertheless commands justice, fair treatment, and positive concern for their welfare. For the advantages of population growth, including immigration, see chapter 7. What then should we do about illegal aliens? Gary North makes the following suggestions. First, require proof of immunization or require those without proof to be immunized. Second, abolish the minimum wage law. Third, abolish all public welfare programs. Fourth, abolish the requirement that the children of illegal aliens be required to attend public schools at taxpayers' expense. Just let them work at whatever wage they can get. In short, let them enjoy the freedom that we all want. But our homegrown socialist programs have made a threat out of those who are willing to work. Our great-grandparents were welcomed, or at least tolerated, because there was no American welfare state in the 19th century. God blesses nations for obedience. If we practice kindness and justice toward strangers, we are promised national blessing, Jeremiah 7, 3 through 7. On the other hand, if we disregard this law, we are warned that we will become immigrants ourselves, Jeremiah 22, 3 through 5. The land of Judah refused to heed Jeremiah's warnings about this, and the curses of the law were fulfilled in their national captivity. After their return, Zechariah reminded them 
of this fact and exhorted them again, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the stranger. Zechariah nine or Zechariah seven nine through fourteen. The prophet Ezekiel, as he looked forward to the flowering of Christian culture through universal obedience to biblical law, spoke of the complete assimilation of strangers into the covenant, an assimilation which would come about not through positive legal enforcement of external integration, but through a common adherence to the true faith. The evangelical witness to strangers by observing God's justice toward them will result in their conversion and discipleship. While it is couched in the symbolism of, of prophetic language, it is no less clear that the inclusion of strangers in the covenant will result from obedience to God's word. So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel, and it will come about that you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Ezekiel 47, 21-22 Number 2. Widows and Orphans these are often mentioned in connection with strangers as those who must be especially protected against oppression. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Exodus twenty two twenty two through twenty four. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, or widow, and all the people shall say Amen. Deuteronomy twenty seven nineteen. More than this, we are commanded to be positively involved in the lives of these people. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Isaiah 1 verse 17. This is in fact the essence of Christian living. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James 1 27. The church has a special responsibility in this regard. Paul exhorted Timothy to honor widows, 1 Timothy 5.3. The Greek word translated honor is often used in scripture to indicate payment, and it obviously has that meaning here in 1 Timothy 5. In fact, Jesus clearly used the term in this way when he commanded that children should provide their aged parents with financial support, Matthew 15.4-6. There is, however, a limitation on the church's responsibility to aid widows. Regular support must be given only to those widows who are widows indeed, and who are without a family, too old to remarry, and thus unable to receive support from relatives. 1 Timothy 5, 3-16 the family bears the major responsibility for financial and other aid, and no other institution or group must usurp this responsibility. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8 these are strong words, and we must take them with uttermost seriousness. When we are too quick to call for aid to the unfortunate from some non-family agency, we undercut the responsibility of families to care for their own. We all have a tendency to abandon our responsibilities 
if some agency is there to assume them for us. The basic social institution is the family. Family members are best equipped to deal with needy relatives in terms of personal care and attention. They are more aware of the real wants of the person and because they are close to the situation are most able to detect abuses of charity. God wants to build responsible relationships within families and the church's responsibility in caring for needy members grows out of the fact that this is our that it is our larger family the household of God but any appeal to the larger family must be only as a last resort even then charity is restricted a widow is to be placed on the list for aid only if she herself is engaged in charitable service having a reputation for good works And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. 1 Timothy 5.10 Biblical charity, as we shall see again and again, never subsidizes irresponsibility. A crucial principle of biblical law is that if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. 2 Timothy 3.10 The further away we get from familial charity, the more likely it is that this principle will be abused. State welfare fraud is so universal as to be practically axiomatic but it is virtually impossible to engage in long-term deception of one's own family. Biblical law is geared toward responsible action on the part of individuals and families. National greatness does not come about through legislation or government governmental coercion. Ronald Sider's call for guaranteed national income is geared only toward national irresponsibility. It is based on the ethic that I have a right to as much money as I can vote out of my neighbor's pocket. In short, thou shalt not steal except by majority vote. Moreover, it will only enslave us to the state. As Auberon Herbert pointed out a century ago, So long as great government departments supply our wants, so long shall we remain in our present condition, the difficulties of life unconquered and ourselves unfitted to conquer them. No amount of state education will make a really intelligent nation. No amount of poor laws will place a nation above want. No amount of factory acts will make us better parents. These great wants, which we are now vainly trying to deal with by acts of parliament, by prohibitions and penalties, are in truth the great occasions of progress if only we surmount them by developing in ourselves more active desires, by putting forth greater efforts, by calling new moral forces into existence, and by perfecting our natural ability for acting together in voluntary associations. To have our wants supplied from without by a huge state machinery, to be regulated and inspected by great armies of officials who are themselves slaves of the system which they administer, will in the long run teach us nothing, will profit us nothing. It is a mistake to suppose that government effort and individual effort can live side by side. The habits of mind which belong to each one are so different that one must destroy the other. Men will not do things for themselves or for others if they once believe that such things can come without exertion on on their own part. There is not sufficient motive. As long as the hope endures that the shoulders of some second person are available, who will offer his own shoulders for the burden? 
It must also be remembered that unless men are left to their own resources, they do not know what it is or is not possible for them to do. If government half a century ago had provided us all with dinners and breakfast, it would be the practice of our orators today to assume the impossibility of our providing for ourselves. Thus, as we examine the biblical poor laws, we must constantly remind ourselves of this central fact. The Bible commands responsibility. Apart from individual and familial responsibility, these laws indeed will not work. Basic to social change and reconstruction must be regeneration by the Holy Spirit through the propagation of the gospel in order that men and women newly created in God's image will begin to assume their responsibilities under God. With this in mind, we may turn our attention to the poor laws of the Bible. Tithes We must begin our analysis of the biblical poor laws with a consideration of tithing, since this is a basic duty of the covenant. It is commonly held that we are no longer under any obligation to tithe in this dispensation. There is not a shred of evidence to support such a position, the law of the tithe has never been revoked. And it should be noted, while the modern abandonment of tithing has a superficial appearance of freedom, it has actually been replaced with a tyrannical legalism. Listen to any radio or television preacher, or perhaps your own pastor, appealing for funds. If he rejects the tithe, what is the basis for his plea? Love. He does not, of course, define love as the Bible defines it, keeping God's commandments, Romans 13, 10, 1 John 5, 3, but rather according to the perceived needs of his own ministry. God's simple requirement is that we give 10% of our income. Once we have paid his tax, we know that no more is demanded. The modern preacher, on the other hand, defines your love for God in terms of how much you give. How much do you love God? Only 10%, only 20, only 30? Shame on you. You should love God lots more than that. If you really completely love him, you'll sign over your next paycheck to me and drop it in the plate. Or don't worry about taking care of your family. How selfish of you. God will take care of them. After all, he's taking care of me, isn't he? Ronald Sider's approach is not really much different than that. His scheme for a graduated tithe, which he claims is only a modest beginning for whatever it is he really has in mind, is based not on scripture, but on the Club of Rome's fallacy-ridden publication entitled Limits to Growth. Where God requires 10% of our income, Cider demands that all income above $14,850 figured for a family of five be given away. Remember, this was back in 1980. Now, Cider may object to this charge, claiming that he isn't demanding anything but it's difficult to read it any other way. Perhaps he is, after all, only hinting. But it's a pretty strong hint, spiked heavily with guilt manipulation. The relationship of antinomianism and legalism is very close indeed. Those who discard God's law wind up replacing it with commands that are truly despotic. But while God's laws are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3, they are laws nevertheless. Tithing is an inescapable requirement and churches should strictly enforce it. We do not need to engage in a lengthy exposition of the tithing laws here, but three important aspects should be outlined. First, the biblical tithe was brought to a central location for a yearly national festival. Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 28, 14, 22 through 27. 
to be spent on oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Deuteronomy 14, 26. God wants his people to rejoice, to glorify him by enjoying the good gifts of life which he provides. Nowhere is there the implication that the exuberance of the people was to be lessened by the ravings of guilt manipulators pointing out that heathen cultures were suffering from malnutrition. God showers economic blessings on his people, and they are to receive them with gratitude and jubilation. Moreover, they were encouraged to purchase wine and strong drink. Scripture forbids drunkenness, but not drinking. Ronald Sider, in sharp contrast, tells us that the production of alcoholic beverages is a flagrant abuse of grain. God did not regard it as abuse, and neither should his people. One of the specific purposes for which God created vegetation was the production of wine which makes man's heart glad. Psalms 104, 14, and 15. In this law, God very definitely commanded that a portion of our tithe be given for the purpose of delighting and reveling in the gifts he provides for us. Other cultures in the days of ancient Israel suffered famine and starvation as they do today. But that had no bearing on the fact that God commanded Israel to celebrate its own bounty. How can this aspect of the tithe be applied today? Since the resurrection of Jesus, there is no longer any national or centralized feast in which we are to participate. In the New Covenant, the gospel has been dispersed throughout the whole world. There is, however, a local feast that is required, a love feast, a weekly celebration in which food is to be shared at the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, 20-34, and Jude verse 12. It is completely within the scope of the law to use the first part of our weekly tithe to finance our participation in the love feast, remembering also to provide food for the poor in the congregation that all may feast together. Deuteronomy 14, 29, 1 Corinthians 11, 21 to 22, and 33. A second aspect of the biblical tithe was that the portion left over after the feast, the bulk of the tithe, was to be given to the national Levites, the special officers of the Old Covenant congregation who functioned as theologians, advisors to the state in legal matters, professional musicians for the worship services, and instructors in God's law. Numbers 18.24 The tithe thus financed Christian reconstruction of the whole society by providing for the social centrality of God's word, proclaimed as the basis for every area of life. The job of the Levites was to bring God's word to bear upon all the issues facing the culture, making sure that the people were always conscious of their covenantal duties. They led the people in worship through teaching, administering the sacraments, and and instructing the people in singing and dancing to the Lord. The faithful proclamation of Scripture and the right worship of God are foundational elements of Christian culture. Everything else flows from them. The tithe, after the love feast, is thus to be used in financing the work of professional theologians, experts in biblical law, teachers of God's word, and skilled leaders in worship. A third and very important aspect of the tithe law was the third year tithe. The people of the Bible lived in seven-year cycles, and in the third year of each cycle, the remainder of the tithe after the feast was to be brought back home that is, not left with the national Levites and deposited in the gates of the individual's local town. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. This meant that the tithe went to the 
elders of the gate, since the gate was the place where the elders sat in judgment. Deuteronomy 22:15 and 25 verse 7. The local elders of the covenant community supervised the administration of the third year tithe dispensing it among the local Levites and the needy aliens, orphans, and widows residing in the town. In the New Covenant, there is no longer a central sanctuary. Thus, the third-year tithe is to be the regular pattern of our tithing today. Normally, the tithe should be paid to the elders of our local church, 1 Corinthians 16.2, and the elders are responsible for administering it in the direction of, Le of Levitical activities and for charitable purposes. If, however, a church is not fulfilling its mandate to proclaim God's word as law for society, the tithe should be withheld from it and given instead to instructions which more fully confirm or conform to Levitical standards. We must not rob God by tithing to apostates. Thus, for example, a man brought his offerings to the prophet Elisha during a time of national apostasy, when the prophets formed a remnant church, 2 Kings 4, 42 and 44. As faithful Christians, we are responsible for the godly disposition of our tithes. The local administration of charity is crucial. It ensures the funds go to those who are truly in need rather than to professional paupers. The charitable aspects of the tithe did not mean simply a handout to everyone who lined up. Charity is to be dispensed by responsible leaders of the covenant community who are in daily contact with the needs of the people. The general principle still holds those who won't work don't eat. Those who attempt to live by a welfare ethic are quickly exposed in a locally administrated program and will be unable to get away with mooching. Even in charity, God's law teaches responsibility. This is in stark contrast to the governmentally financed charity promoted by Ronald Sider. Murray Rothbard observes, State poor relief is clearly a subsidization of poverty. For men who are now automatically entitled to money from the state because of their poverty. Hence, the marginal disutility of income foregone from leisure diminishes and idleness and poverty tend to increase further, which in turn increases the amount of subsidy that must be extracted from the taxpayers. Thus, a system of legally subsidized poverty tends to call forth more of the very poverty that is supposedly being alleviated. Rothbard notes further, private charity to the poor, on the other hand, would not have the same vicious circle effect, since the poor would not have a continuing compulsory claim on the rich. This is particularly true where private charity is given only to the deserving poor, and that is exactly the case with the biblical poor laws. They are not enforced by the state, nor does the state collect or dispense the tithes. The individual is expected to obey God's word, and he is responsible to administer the tithes in a conscientious, faithful manner. Biblical law aids the poor and yet makes it economically desirable for them to work their way out of poverty. This fact is even more obvious in the following section. Gleaning. The primary source of regular charity to the poor was the practice of gleaning, in which farmers were required to let the poor gather the fruit that remained after the harvest. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, 23, verse 22, Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21. The farmer was prohibited from completely harvesting his crops. He had to leave the corners of his field untouched 
and the fruit which was left on the trees after they were beaten or shaken had to remain there. The poor were then allowed to pick the fields clean. Related to this was the law of the sabbatical year. When the land received its rest, no real harvesting was allowed, but the poor were allowed to glean whatever fruit was there. Exodus 23, 10, and 11. A similar law, not dealing with poverty as such, allowed anyone entering a neighbor's field to pick grapes or grain and eat his fill as long as he did not carry any food away from the premises. Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25. Also see Matthew 12, verse 1. Two points are of special importance here. First, gleaning was not indiscriminate. Landowners apparently had the right to specify which of the deserving poor could glean on their land and special favors would be granted by the owner. Ruth 2, 4-16 Gleaning was not simply a right which could be claimed by any poor person against the field of any landowner. In no sense was property held in common. God required landowners to allow the poor to glean, but the owner nevertheless had the right to dispose of his property as he saw fit, within the boundaries of the law. The gleaning law cannot be used as a basis for social redistribution of wealth. Second, gleaning was hard work, much harder than normal harvesting. Gleaners had to labor arduously in order to gather sufficient food. Only a little would be left after the reapers were finished. A small cluster of grapes here, a sheaf of grain there. Israel was, not, was no welfare state. Recipients of charity had to diligent to be diligent workers. The lazy and improvident could expect no saving intervention by a benevolent bureaucrat. God's law commands us to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, but not in such a way as to, as to produce dependence on charity. The result of charitable activity should be responsibility so that eventually each one shall bear his own load. Galatians 6 verse 5 Lending A third remedy for poverty was that the poor man could take out a loan. While there is no biblical evidence that it was forbidden to charge interest on a business loan to a fellow believer, Matthew 25, 27, Loans to a believer for charitable purposes had to be interest-free. Exodus 22:25, Leviticus 25, 35-37. Moreover, any loan to a believer had to be wiped out in the seventh year. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. Thus no believer could be charged with debt for longer than six years. Wealthy Israelites were strictly commanded not to withhold charity loans to believers on the grounds that the sabbatical year was close at hand. You shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brothers, but you shall, shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Deuteronomy 15, 7-10 If the poor man was unable to repay the loan within the specified time, the creditor was to cross the debt off his books altogether, accepting the loss, strong in the faith that since all events move in terms of God's law, 
he would receive God's blessings. Not merely the warm feeling that virtue is its own reward, but material economic blessings. A zero interest loan, which would automatically be dropped without charge at the end of six years at most, looks tempting and might appear to be rather one-sided, costing the poor man nothing. Such was not the case. While this was truly a charitable law, it did not breed irresponsibility. That, in the long run, would not be charity at all. To qualify for a charity loan, the recipient had to be genuinely poor, with only a cloak. Exodus 22, 26-27 I cannot qualify for a charity loan if I have resources of my own to fall back on. The wealthy were not required to give interest-free loans to those who were not really destitute. The poor laws of the Bible do not subsidize irresponsible greed. My brother has no obligation to lend freely to me if I need a new stereo, television, or even a refrigerator. These loans were granted to help those who were actually in want, with nowhere else to turn. Needless to say, there are many living even below the poverty level who would not be eligible for this loan. The cloak of the poor man was to be used as collateral. It was taken from him every every morning, but returned to him at night so he could be warm. Exodus 22:26-27. This was to prevent him from using the same collateral for more than one loan while recognizing his need for a covering during the cold nights. Multiple indebtedness was forbidden. And even though the poor man was able to have his cloak returned each evening, he would be without its comfort during the daytime. This gave him incentive to repay the loan as soon as possible. The law, while helpful to those in desperate straits, still militated against irresponsibility. It was not easy to get a charity loan, and it wasn't easy to live with it either. The case of the unbeliever, many strangers would fit into this category, was even more difficult. For him, there was no release in the sabbatical year or the year of Jubilee. Deuteronomy 15, verse 3, Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. He could be charged interest as well, regardless of his poverty, and there was no limit on the interest rate, Deuteronomy 23.20. Because unbelievers are by nature irresponsible, they need the incentive of increasing debt to get them to repay loans. Again, the laws are not indiscriminate. They do, in fact, discriminate against the irresponsible poor and press home the fact that poverty is a liability. Poverty is never allowed to be used as a lever against those who are better off. The only ones who benefit from the poor laws are those who are willing to work diligently for the future. Eventually, those who merely desire to plunder or sponge off the rich will bite the dust. God's laws are intended to further his kingdom. They cannot be used successfully in opposition to him. Slavery The Bible permits slavery. This statement will come as a shock to most people. The laws in the Bible concerning slavery have very seldom been studied, much less preached upon. But the biblical laws concerning slavery are among the most beneficent in all the Bible. The biblical institution of slavery has as its basic purpose the elimination of poverty and its foremost cause, the slave mentality. Ron Sider constantly connects slavery with oppression and seems to think the two are identical. Slavery is an example of an institutionalized evil, he tells us. And he speaks of the sin of participating in slavery. Many people, when they think of slavery, think of the pre-Civil War South where certain aspects of slavery were in violation of biblical law. 
Thus many know only of an abused, unbiblical form of slavery. But since the Bible allows for slavery, it is clearly unbiblical to speak of slavery as being wrong or sinful. Even southern slavery was not as unbiblical as many have charged. The common conception of the slavery of that age is quite distorted. The abolitionists were often as guilty of transgressing God's laws as were slaveholders, as we shall see in our next chapter. If slavery were a sin, God would not have provided for it. Indeed, since God is the standard of right and wrong, the fact that he gives rules for the proper management of slavery shows that no disregard shows to disregard the laws of slavery is a sin. For example, since fornication is a sin, God does not give directions for the right management of a brothel, nor does he offer instructions about successful methods of murder or theft. Slavery is not a sin, but the violation of God's slavery laws is. To understand God's slavery laws, we must understand a basic biblical fact. Slavery is inescapable. No culture is without it. Apart from God's grace, all men are enslaved to sin. Salvation liberates us from slavery to sin and makes us slaves of righteousness, obedient to God's word rather than to Satan's. Romans 6, 16-22 I'm not playing with words here, for this point is central to social and cultural issues. If men are not slaves of God, they are already enslaved to sin. As sinners, they abandon their duty of dominion over the creation, with the result that they become slaves of, of other men, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1.25 the issues of life flow from the heart, Proverbs 4.23, and a man's relationship to God, or lack thereof, has immediate and long-lasting consequences in every area of life. Every culture that has not served the true God has eventually become enslaved to the state. Ron Sider's thesis will not liberate anyone in this regard. His solution to the problem of poverty is merely a plea for increased slavery to the state through radical government intervention in all of life. Since slavery always will always exist, the biblical answer is not to try to abolish it, but to follow God's laws for slavery. While many of these laws may seem harsh, we must recognize that, first, these laws are remedies for irresponsibility and seek to drive men out of slavery. And second, the laws of God are not nearly so harsh as the laws of men. While God's law produces a responsible, stable social order, man's slavery laws are chaotic, oppressive, and tyrannical. The biblical worldview is not a fairy tale or romantic perfectionism, but a realistic appraisal of men with their sins and shortcomings. God's word meets us where we are in our slavery and shows us the way toward responsible dominion under God. 1. Obtaining Slaves Kidnapping is forbidden as a method of acquiring slaves and deserves capital punishment, Exodus 21.16. Basically, there are only four legal ways to get slaves. They, have, they, have, they may be purchased, Leviticus 25.44-46, captured in war, Numbers 31.32-35, Deuteronomy 21.10-14, Enslaved as punishment for theft, Exodus 22, 1-3, or enslaved to pay off debts, Leviticus 25, 39, Exodus 21, 7. We should especially note God's merciful justice here. Heathen slaves who were purchased or captured in war were actually favored by this law, since it placed them in contact with believers. 
they received the relatively lenient treatment of the biblical slavery regulations, and they were also able to hear the liberating message of the gospel. Slaves making restitution for theft or debt were also benefited by this law. The Bible does not allow imprisonment except for a man held for trial or execution. The the thief is not caged up at taxpayer's expense and treated like an animal. He labored productively in an evangelical family context and made proper restitution to the victim for his crime. He earned back his self-respect and restored what he owed to his victim. If those who are fervently, if those who so fervently desire social justice wouldn't mind a suggestion, here's one. Work to implement structural change in our criminal and penal codes and bring back restitution. Whoops, that would mean slavery. Oh well, better to keep the status quo and let the victims of theft live with their losses while supporting their attackers in tax-financed penitentiaries. Better to pin up the criminal with murderers and homosexuals in an impersonal environment than to have him work in a godly home. Two, the care of slaves. Slaves have no economic incentive to work since they cannot improve their situation regardless of how hard they labor. Therefore, the master is allowed to provide the incentive by beating them. Exodus 21, 20-27 Obviously, the slave is not regarded as having equal rights with a free man. But this very fact would keep a man from entering slavery too hastily. Slavery has certain benefits, job security, etc., but it has serious drawbacks as well. Slavery was not allowed to become irresponsible welfare or paternalism. The law limited the master, however. If he murdered his slave, he was executed. Exodus 21.20 On the other hand, if the slave survived a beating and died a day or two later, there was no punishment. Exodus 21.21 There was no evidence that the master had actually intended to murder him. Again, this risk was a serious incentive against enslaving oneself. God did not want men to heedlessly abandon their freedom, and this law would tend to keep men working hard and living responsibly in order to avoid the threat of losing their liberty and civil rights. Relatively minor but permanent injuries, such as the loss of an eye or a tooth, resulted in the slave's freedom, Exodus 21, 26-27. This was also an economic incentive to keep the master from hitting the slave in the face since the heavy blow could mean the loss of his investment. Naturally, this law protected slaves from mere mutilation. 3. Freedom for Slaves Free Hebrews who had been reduced to slavery were freed in the seventh year, Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2, or at the latest in the Jubilee year, Leviticus 25, 40-41, depending on the severity of the situation. Slaves who escaped from ungodly cultures were not returned to their masters, but were set free instead, Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. A slave also had the right to save up enough money to purchase his own freedom, Leviticus 25:49. a fact which indicates two things. First, the slavery laws, in common with the other poor laws, provided for upward mobility. And second, private property rights were protected at all levels of society, so that even slaves were able to acquire and dispose of property. Freed slaves were liberally furnished with gifts from the master's flock, threshing floor, and wine cellar, Deuteronomy 15.14. The freed slave was thus enabled to make a living for himself, be fed, and rejoice in his freedom. God's law is strict but merciful. A freed slave can get back on his feet and resume a productive place in society. 
To repeat the basic lesson, God's law encourages responsibility. It provides many incentives against men enslaving themselves, and when men do become slaves, they are protected but not coddled. When the period of slavery is over, they are able to hold their heads up with other men, possessing the tools with which to start over without debt. For the heathen slave, however, the situation was different. Although he was protected by the same slavery laws, he was never freed unless he redeemed himself, not even in the Jubilee, which freed only Hebrew slaves. Leviticus 25, 40-46 Unbelievers are slaves by nature, and there is no reason to free them as long as they remain in their spiritual bondage. The enslaved foreigner who was converted would, of course, demonstrate his spiritual freedom by responsibly saving and purchasing his own freedom. Does this appear harsh? It is certainly a very different view of slavery than that held by Ronald Sider. But let us be sure that our standards in ethics really come from the Bible. If the slavery laws seem unjust to us, it is because we are wrong. God's law is the perfect transcript of his justice. Any protest against God's laws is a moral indictment of God in the same class with the original sin in the garden. By substituting our laws for God's, we produce only injustice and increasing slavery. James B. Jordan comments, The problem in the Old South came about because converted slaves were not freed, and thus no mechanism was instituted whereby men might rise to freedom. As we have seen, the purpose of the enslavement of unbelievers is evangelism, and the purpose of the enslavement of believers is to train them to be responsible free citizens. Thus, there is an upward thrust to the biblical laws concerning slavery. It is the goal of slavery to eliminate itself by producing responsible free men. Where that upward rise is cut off by statist legislation, as it was in the Old South under both slavery and paternalism, God is offended. Now contrast the biblical form of slavery with which, with some of Ronald Sider's proposals. He declares himself to be against slavery since it's a sin, but life in its status paradise is a form of slavery that is truly oppressive and outlawed by God's word. The Bible warns us against slavery to the state, and biblical law works to prevent it. See, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 8. State-provided welfare causes dependence on the state and is surely slavery. It is used by greedy politicians to buy votes and to create a class that is beholden to the rulers. Where we become used to benefits, we lose our reliance upon God, neighbors, family, and self, and we increasingly are unable to act responsibly. Already it is common to find people, even Christians, who simply cannot conceive of certain tasks being performed without state aid. It is a marvel to them that people have ever had housing, education, health care, jobs, transportation, postal service, food, and money apart from state monopolization. And this is slavery. As Auburn Herbert argued, treat the people as unworthy of trust, and they will justify your expectation. Tell them that you do not expect them to possess a sense of responsibility, to think or act for themselves, withhold from them the most natural and the most important opportunities for such things, and in due time they will passively accept the mental and moral condition you have made for them. Each man unconsciously reasons, why should I do that which the state will do for me? Sider believes that the wealthy have unjust power, that they usually become wealthy by oppressing the poor. The validity this notion of this notion will be examined later. 
He thus seeks to break this economic power through granting more power to the state. Are those greedy laissez-faire capitalists charging too much for their products? Are those bourgeois running dogs paying the noble worker an unfair wage? Let's bring in some heavy-handed government clout to take care of the problem. What we need is an omnipotent state that will enforce price and wage controls on corrupt businessmen. Never mind that such controls inevitably result in shortages and unemployment. Why, that's a doctrine of the deist Adam Smith. His law of supply and demand has been repealed. Lord Keynes has revolutionized us, ridding us once and for all of Enlightenment philosophies and secular economic theories. Of course, various societies for at least the last 4,000 years have attempted such measures before. Some men have implemented, who implemented price and wage controls are in fact quite justly famous for their actions. One government leader of a generation ago will be long remembered. For a time, he was able to stabilize prices, wages, and employment at a level that modern bureaucrats can only dream of. He was so successful that even if you aren't a history student, you may recall his name, Adolf Hitler. The point is that economic controls require an omnipotent, enslaving state to enforce them. If you aren't willing to have totalitarianism, the controls won't work. Price and wage management is impossible without complete oversight of every sector of society. Halfway measures will not suffice. Hermann Göring, Hitler's economic planner, admitted this to an American correspondent in 1946 when he was a prisoner of war. Speaking of American economic programs, which were similar to some of his own past endeavors, he offered this revealing comment. You are trying to control people's wages and prices, people's work. If you do that, you must control people's lives. And no country can do that part way. That was the thrust of Hillary Bellock's mocking advice to those who desired gradual socialism. It cannot be done, he said. It cannot come about without violent expropriation. The basic rule is this. If you desire to confiscate, you must confiscate. Ronald Sider claims to be working for liberation and equality for the oppressed. He declares that slavery is wrong and appears to damn it with every breath. Yet his concrete proposals for reform look quite the opposite under the searchlight of biblical law. I am willing to grant him some measure of sincerity, some. But whether or not he is aware of what he is really doing, the effect of his proposals would be totalitarian, oppressive regime, a totalitarian, oppressive regime, the likes of which Hitler was never able to achieve. It would make the state nothing less than God. And when man plays God, the result is always bondage. During the Second World War, F.A. Hayek published a stirring warning to the people of England who were blindly pursuing the policies which had brought the Nazis to power in Germany. He wrote, The substitution of political for economic power now so often demanded, means necessarily the substitution of power from which there is no escape for a power which is always limited. What is called economic power, while it can be an instrument of coercion, is in the hands of private individuals never exclusive or complete power, never power over the whole life of a person. But centralized as an instrument of political power, it creates a degree of dependence scarcely distinguishable from slavery. <laughs> the Jubilee With everything Ron Sider has said about the Jubilee principle, it might be expected that an extended discussion of the subject would naturally fall under the heading of the biblical poor laws. However, it will not be examined in this chapter for two reasons. First, Sider refers to the Jubilee so often and draws so many fallacious 
conclusions from it that it really requires separate treatment in another chapter. But there is much more important reason uh, for excluding it from the present chapter. Shocking as it may seem, the law of the Jubilee was not a poor law. That is, its primary intent and function had nothing to do with the alleviation of poverty as such. Certainly, it did affect the status of certain poor people, but that was only incidental to its true purpose. In fact, in contrast to the laws on tithing, the laws on gleaning, lending, and slavery, most of the poor may not have been affected by the observance of the Jubilee at all. Honesty to the biblical evidence prohibits us from dealing with it as a poor law. In concluding this chapter, a brief anecdote may illustrate a fundamental principle for which I am contending. I once heard a well-known college professor debate Dr. Gary North on the subject of care for the poor. He took a position similar to Sider's, and since he was speaking to a seminary audience, his lecture appropriately had three points. First, he said, the individual has a duty to the poor. With an open Bible before him, he admirably defended this from Scripture. Second, he observed, the church has a duty to the poor. Again, he quoted copiously from Holy Writ. Third, he declared, the state has a duty to the poor. He then picked up the Bible, closed it, and put it aside. God displayed his power at the Exodus to free a poor, oppressed people. Ronald Sider, The Christian Century, March 19, 1980, page 315. He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Psalm 105:43. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.